This morning, we're starting a brand new series called Storyline. And today is really an overview of that. So turn to Luke 24. We'll be there in a few moments and hopefully understand how scripture is one story. If you had to guess, what would you guess is the best-selling trilogy of books of all time? Best-selling trilogy of all time. Say again. Okay, any other guesses? I forgot that was a trilogy. Touche. That's a good one. What other? Best-selling trilogy. Trilogy is a three-part series, by the way, if, if, uh, if you're like me and you don't use words like that very often. Any other guesses? Trilogy. What about best-selling uh, trilogy of movies of all time? Star Wars? Any alternative guesses? No? So the best-selling trilogy of books is Lord of the Rings, right there, the man in blue in the back. Uh, The best-selling movie series, if I remember right, it's hard because Harry Potter was originally a trilogy, but it ultimately was not. But I believe either Harry Potter or... Lord of the Rings takes the cake as well at the box office. Lord of the Rings, this is crazy. Um, it was written a while back. You, you may not realize that. It's a pretty old series by um, Tolkien. The books, all three of them combined, sold 150 million copies. And at the box office, the three movies combined made over a billion dollars. And pretty huge achievement. Every once in a while, if my wife and I aren't watching a show together at night and I'm doing work on my computer, my wife will uh, take that opportunity to watch the movie she wants to watch. I'm kind of strange probably in the fact that I almost never watch re- re-watch a movie. I just, I'd rather watch a new one, right? I any, any of you with me on that? Like, let's just watch something new. Okay, you all want to watch the classics, whatever. Maybe I'm weird, okay? So I, I, I'm kind of halfway tuned out halfway tuned in. You know how it is if you're trying to work and there's a movie in front of you, right? Um, The same thing last night, I was reviewing my sermons and there was a really good movie that just came out and I was watching a little bit. And I find myself, specifically with the other trilogy that Tolkien made, The Hobbit, um, I'd glance up, glance down, and I have a pet peeve with movies. How many of you hate it when someone asks you a question during the movie? Two people. All the rest of us are carnal. <laughs> Kathy's pointing at Mark. I love it. How many of you hate it when someone asks a question during a movie? I'm that guy. When my kids, I've got a six-year-old, four-year-old, right, that are watching movies with us now. If you all have parenting advice how to get your kids not to ask questions during movies, I would love to hear it because it bothers the fire out of me. But here's what I found myself doing. Because I'm half watching, you know what I'm doing? Who's that guy? You know, I'm asking all the questions. Why? Because if you watch the later movies without fully understanding the earlier ones, you're going to be lost. You're going to miss so much. I'm convinced this morning that many Christians read their Bibles like I've watched the Lord of the Rings series. They know occasional stories. They glance up at occasional moments of the Old Testament. And when they get to the New Testament, they understand it, right? You can watch a later movie and not be totally lost. The filmmakers know how to do that. But you miss so much, don't you? 
I, I watched uh, The Last Avengers movie, and it's the same thing. I watched Endgame, and the only movie I saw was the previous one, and there's like 20 Marvel movies that were leading up to Avengers Endgame, and there was stuff happening in that movie. I was like, oh, that's cool, but my wife's like, no, that's like super, super important, right? When Captain America holds Thor's hammer, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are lost. You need to watch the Avengers, right? He's holding Thor's, I was just like, oh, that's cool. It's like, no, that's, that's like a plot line for several movies that you're missing. I think the same is true with the Bible, that we read the New Testament, we understand the story. Jesus died and buried and was rose again, and there's certain things we need to do in response to that, but we miss a lot when we don't understand the Old Testament. And so I think a lot of Christians, they spend a lot of their time in the New Testament. I said this before, most of your devotion, popular devotional books camp out in the New Testament, in the epistles of Paul, because it seems like they're more immediately relevant. We're afraid to traverse the distant-sounding stories of Genesis. And we're especially afraid of the laws of Leviticus. I'm about to start that in my Bible reading. Or the genealogies of Numbers. I'm not sure which one's more scary, Leviticus or Numbers in my personal Bible reading. Or even harder, I think, is the prophecies of Ezekiel. What on earth is going on there? And so, consequently, most of our Bible reading, if we read our Bibles, most sermons from churches, even, are from the New Testament. Now, I understand that reading the Old Testament can be really hard for a couple different reasons. Number one, the Old Testament's written through stories, right? And those stories are okay when it's Cain and Abel and you know like, hey, don't get angry and let your anger conquer you. Or you learn from David, don't stare at women who are naked and don't cheat on your spouse and things like that. Or Noah says, uh, Noah teaches us to believe in God's promises. But there are so many stories, aren't there, in the Old Testament that we're like, why is this here? What does this mean? And then on top of that, though the Old Testament's a lot of story, narrative, all the time that the Old Testament is teaching, it's a genre called law. So when it's not story, and the point isn't immediately obvious, it's often these laws in Leviticus like this. Don't, cut, don't offer sacrifices on altars made with cut stones. What, what does that have to do with me, Right? Or my favorite one I read recently in Exodus is don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Try applying that to your life tomorrow on Monday morning. And then there, on top of that, there's some eyebrow-raising topics in the Old Testament, aren't there? In Genesis, I believe it's 38, you've got uh, incest, and prostitution, you have plundering, you have war, you have slavery, and you have polygamy like it's normal, right? So in summary, reading your Old Testament can be fruit, seem fruitless. Only 10% of it feels relevant, right? It seems very disconnected from the New Testament because you got polygamy that's normal in the Old Testament and you're supposed to only stay with one person in the New Testament. And then on top of that, I don't know if you've ever looked, but your Old Testament is 75% of your Bible. And then on top of that, if you want to just pick a book in the Old Testament, most of them are huge. There are more chapters than most of the books in the New Testament. Genesis, longer than any book in the New Testament. Exodus, longer than any book in the New Testament. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, Ezekiel, 
They're all longer than all the New Testament books. So we just like, I'll pick a little one, please, right? Here's the problem. And this is where we get to our handout. When we miss the Old Testament, here's the problem with that. The foundational storyline, wording, ideas, and commands of the New Testament are always a development of the storyline, wording, ideas, and commands of the Old Testament. And you say, well, how, how do you know that, Pastor Mike? Because the New Testament, this is crazy, it quotes the Old Testament just under 300 times, depending on which ones they're counting. And when you count obvious allusions and metaphors and things like that, there are 1,000 connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you average that out, there are four connections to the Old Testament per chapter of your New Testament. So what, I, what, I'm, what I'm advocating to you this morning, if we don't understand the Old Testament and how it connects to the New Testament, we might be lost four times a chapter. Or maybe not lost, but we might miss stuff like Thor's hammer. You know what I mean? We might be missing something. And we certainly, certain books, you have to understand their Old Testament references. You cannot understand Revelation if you don't know Daniel and Ezekiel and some other parts of the Old Testament. So in other words, if you read the, the New Testament, and you're immersed in the New Testament, but you don't seem overly familiar with the broad history of the Old Testament, it's like watching Star Wars episodes one through three without watching the low-budget originals. You can make it through it, but man, you miss a lot. It's like watching Avengers Endgame without watching the other Marvel movies. It's like watching Lord of the Rings Return of the King without watching the first two. Are you you're catching my drift this morning? We need, as Christians, to understand the complete story of Scripture. And when we don't know the whole story of Scripture, here's the problem. We become bored by the Old Testament. I'm speaking from experience. That's why a lot of Christians, they'll, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And they start in Genesis. And it's great. And then they get to the middle of Exodus and it's like, I'm not sure about this commitment anymore. It doesn't seem to have much to do with us. And here's the other problem. And I think it even, um, oh wow, I missed a slide here. We'll be bored by the Old Testament. I don't know if this is on your handout. We will misinterpret the Old Testament by over applying it. Is that line on your handout or no? If you don't understand the Old Testament, you will over-apply it or allegorize it. Don't worry, spelling doesn't count. Allegorize it. Or you'll fail to see its fulfillment in the New Testament. Let me give you some examples, okay? Over-applying the Old Testament. It's those people, there's a, a church that was used to be connected with our church that, you, that now or went to a place where they're observing Old Testament feasts and worshiped on Saturday, that's over-applying the Old Testament, right? And there's, there's all sorts of other standards people set up that they use verses from the Old Testament, right? Yeah. Hey, women, you need to only wear dresses. Well, they're pulling that from a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, right? And then there's other situations like allegorizing. Allegorizing. How many of you have ever heard this? That Canaan stands for the victorious Christian life. Any of you ever heard that? That's allegorizing. That's not what it stands for, by the way. And so if we don't understand the Old Testament, we allegorize it and we misunderstand what 
God is saying, or we fail to see its fulfillment in the New Testament. And so sometimes Christians will read the Old Testament, not understanding how it corresponds to the New Testament, and they'll overemphasize the place of the nation of Israel because they, they totally miss what Paul is saying about Israel in Galatians 3 and Romans 9 through 11, and they'll misinterpret it. They'll fail to see its fulfillment. And then here's the other problem. We miss the richness of the meaning of the New Testament if we don't understand the prequels. What I want to present to you this, this series, and, and I, ho- I hope it'll be helpful, it's going to be a little more meaty. I trust many of you have been saved for 30, 40, 50 years that you're ready for some meat. If you're not, let me know. I, I, I don't want to be boring, but I want to be helpful. And this will be more helpful if you read your Old Testament, right? It, you'll, you'll see the uh, relevance But here's what I want to show you, this series. The Bible is not two stories, Old Testament, New Testament. The Bible is one overarching, mind-blowing, epic story about God's action to save human beings from their rebellion against him and from the effects and the consequences of that rebellion. What I want you to understand is the Bible is not two stories. It's one story. And, it's, and if we understand that's one story, we'll understand the little stories. I'm going to say that a lot. If we understand the big story of the Bible, it'll help you understand the little stories of the Bible. And hopefully throughout the series, you'll begin to see that in different ways. I wish I could spend five hours on some of these lessons because there's just so much that we could learn and, and help us in shaping our view of the Bible. I want you to see that God is not working in different ways to save humanity throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not different ways. It's not a different plan of salvation. The Bible is the story of God developing and clarifying and adding to a single plan of salvation. By the way, Jesus, sorry, the epistles say that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That means that plan was in place and God always knew it was going there. And so the Bible is not different ways of salvation. There's, there's frameworks for understanding the Bible that say that. But it's a single plan of salvation. Now, sometimes when people hear that, that the Bible's one story, they're gonna have some mixed feelings, right? Okay, pastor, if the Bible's one story, why is Leviticus telling me to do certain things that Acts is telling me not to do? Are you with me? We, we just preached through Acts, right? Food and circumcision come up very clearly in Acts. Those are instituted, well, in Genesis and then also Leviticus. So Leviticus is telling me to do this and Acts is telling me not to. What's up with that? How can you say the Bible's one story when it, someone could say it's contradicting itself, right? Or they might say, how can all of scripture point to Jesus when there are a lot of places that don't seem to point to him at all? Right? We all understand how maybe Isaac being sacrificed on Mount Moriah points to Jesus, but what about Tamar and Judah's incest? Well, I don't really know how that points to Jesus sometimes, right? I'm in, I'm in pockets of the Bible, and so a lot of us, our understanding of the Old Testament is really those episodes that seem most clearly to point to Jesus, and then everything between can be kind of fuzzy. Here's what I want to show you this morning. One idea the big idea of the lesson this morning is this. The reason we can say that scripture is one story 
is that Jesus and the apostles clearly interpreted the Bible as one story that finds its fulfillment in Jesus and the gospel. This is not some newfangled idea. You might say, Pastor Mike, I've never heard this. I've been in church twice as long as you've been alive. That, I respect that. Jesus was around a lot longer before you or your pastor or your former pastor. So I'm gonna take my interpretive hints from Jesus, not from a book, not from a, a theory that's new. This is very old, old thinking about the Bible, okay? I wanna show you that. If you turn to Luke 24, you'll see it. Are you in Luke, Luke 24? Here's the main idea, and I'll show it to you from the scripture. Jesus said, this is on your handout, that all of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings point to him. Now, let me explain this to you. Um, let me give you a little bit of context in Luke 24. Luke is an interesting gospel. Sometimes people think that only Matthew is like a Jewish gospel. Luke's gospel is the only one that starts in the temple. And then it ends with this reference to the Old Testament twice. We're gonna see both references to the Old Testament. So Luke is wrapping his gospel in this idea that Jesus is the, is the part two. He's the sequel to the Old Testament. You have Zechariah in the temple and John the Baptist, that episode in Luke 1, and then it leads to Jesus. And then it ends here in Luke 24 with Jesus looking back and saying, all of the Old Testament pointed to me. That's Luke's context. And of course, we know that the end of the Gospels all end with what significant event about Jesus? What's the significant event about Jesus that ends all of the Gospels? His resurrection. And all of them choose to record different things after he rose from the dead. Um, some of them have overlapped. Some of them have distinctive stories. This story, the, the road to Emmaus account, is unique to Luke. I don't think any of the other gospels have this story. And, and, and so it means something to Luke. Some people think, this is an interesting theory, that Luke was one of the guys on the road to Emmaus. I think it's a cool theory. And the road to Emmaus guys make up all of Luke chapter number 24. And this is a cool story because Jesus, after his resurrection, he could have appeared to the crowds. He, he obviously appeared to his apostles. But before he appears to his own apostles, he appears to two individuals, unnamed, possibly unimportant in the larger history of the church. But Jesus chooses to appear to them first or very, very early. And we read the account that these guys are really sad. They were followers of Jesus. They weren't part of the 12, but they were faithful followers of Jesus. And Jesus has died and he's uh, obviously been dead at least three days. And they're walking and talking about how bummed they were. Look at verse number <clears throat> 14 of Luke 24. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Now here's what happens. Jesus interrupts their conversation. And it came to pass that while they communed together in reason, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So he starts walking alongside of them, but their eyes were holding that they should not know them, know him. And then the conversation goes on and they start talking about, they're like, do you not understand this, this really important figure died? I mean, we thought he was the Messiah and he's dead now. And man, what a disappointment. And what's interesting to me about Jesus is he rebukes them. Look at his rebuke in verse number 36. After a very long exchange, or sorry, I have the wrong reference here. 25, verse number 25. 
This is strong language. You and I have been like, maybe Jesus should be more tender. Well, he wasn't. And I'll explain why. Look at verse 25. Oh, fools, and slow of heart to believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. Now, now this is interesting to me. When you and I think about Jesus in his life, it's easy to see the sacrifice of Jesus in the Old Testament pretty often. But the resurrection, I'll be honest with you, we'll get to that in this series, we don't see a whole lot of things that maybe point to his resurrection. It seems to have been kind of an unknown, something that people wouldn't have uh, assumed if they were reading the Old Testament. But Jesus says, no, if you had read all that the prophets have spoken, you would have known that this man himself would have risen from the dead. Look at verse 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He says, if you, here's what he's saying. If you had properly understood the prophets, you would have known that suffering would have led to glory, not disappointment. Now, all of us reading our Old Testaments would say, well, I'm kind of in their shoes. I don't know where this resurrection thing's showing up in the Old Testament, Jesus. And then Luke goes a step further. Look at verse 27. This is really key. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, you understand Moses is shorthand for what books of the Bible? Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? The law, the Torah. Always in the New Testament, it's the writings of Moses, right? Which, by the way, Moses wrote, if Jesus believed Moses wrote it, Mike believes Moses wrote it. You know what I mean? So Moses is the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, we'll get to this here in a minute, are speaking of Samuel, so the books of history, through the end of the major prophets and minor prophets, Okay, so he's saying all of Israel's history, all of the historical writings of the Old Testament point to me. Now, I want you to notice that when Jesus is teaching the Old Testament, he's saying that all of it, how much do you think all of it means? Some chapters are every chapter. Every chapter. I don't think Luke is mistaken. I don't think he means, well, you know, just most of it. No, all of it. Every chapter points to me. And what's, what's interesting is that this story is flavored with these terms that speak of scriptural interpretation and teaching. Verse number 15 talks about he communed with them. That's a teaching term. Verse number 15, he reasoned with them. Verse 27, he expounded on them. And then the story goes on. These same guys show up. They must have been close with the 12 apostles or now 11. And they show up in the same room and they're now recounting the story to them. Jesus disappeared. He ate some bread with them, then he disappeared. And then he, they're talking about these disciples and Jesus shows up again. Look at verse number 36. This is a separate episode. Same two disciples, now at the 11 and maybe a few more. And as they just spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, peace be unto you. Well, the, the next verses record to us that they're not only terrified they don't believe this is actually Jesus. They think he's a spirit. Look at verse 37. They were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. So they still don't believe Jesus. By the way, this is what Luke is getting at, that people have a hard time believing in the resurrection. 
that even Jesus' own disciples were slow of hearing and hard of heart. And so here's the apostles, and that Jesus is standing before them, talking to them, and they don't believe it. So Jesus proves his, his resurrection in three ways. He proves it by showing them his physical body, right? He shows his hands. He proves it by showing his bodily function. He eats with them, fish in a honeycomb. And then the third thing he does to prove his resurrection is he shows them what the scripture said. Look down at verse number 44. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you. He's saying this, I'm repeating myself now. I've told you this before, but I'm gonna say it again. While I was yet with you, that, what's the next word? All. All things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So here you see again, the law of Moses. Which books of the Bible is that? First five. Now here's what you gotta understand. I know this would be, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. The Jewish order of scripture is different than what's in your table of contents. They ordered their books of the Bible differently. They had three sections, Right? We have law, history, um, psalms and writings, or poetry, we call them books of poetry, major prophets, minor prophets, right? And, and then there's one or two in there that don't really fit any category, so they just like, they're miscellaneous, right? In the Jewish canon, the way it was arranged is it was the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the psalms. The, the reason they called it writings or psalms is because the first book in the order of the writings was the book of psalms. So actually, uh, some of the books that you would think would be in the prophets or the history are actually in the writings. First and second chronicles were the last books of the Old Testament in the Jewish canon. If you read the end of second chronicles, you'll understand why. So what Jesus is saying, just shorthand here, is here's what he's saying. I'm just gonna paraphrase it to you. He said, these are the things which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in all of the Old Testament concerning me. That's what he's saying. So he's highlighting each of the sections of the Old Testament. He's saying, all of those things were fulfilled in me. Are you seeing that? So what Jesus is saying, not only on the road to Emmaus, but in this encounter with his disciples, is he's saying, all of the Old Testament points to me. Jesus, when Jesus came, in a way, Jesus puts an interpretive stake in the ground and says, you need to read the Old Testament differently because of me. He changes how we read the Old Testament. Jesus does. Because he says that not just part of the Old Testament is fulfilled in him, but all of it is fulfilled in him. Do you see that in Luke 24? Jesus is saying, all of it is fulfilled in me. Not all of it's fulfilled in the same way, by the way. Not all of it is as clear-cut images as the images of sacrifice are, but in some way, in some shape, in some form, it all points to Jesus and the Gospels. Are we on the same page there? Any questions? Pastor Mike, this doesn't make sense. Can you connect those dots for me? So, it would make sense then if Jesus interprets scripture this way that Paul would, right? And that's what we see next. Paul also saw all scripture as pointing to Jesus and profitable for Christians. 
Now, if you think preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible doesn't allow God to pair some stuff up and you need a pastor to figure that all out, you're wrong. Because you know what we're preaching tonight? Acts 28, verses 17 through 41 or whatever. And right here in this lesson shows up again. Look at Acts 28, 23. We'll see it in our message tonight. Now remember, who wrote the book of Acts? Bible trivia, who wrote the book of Acts? Louder, please. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, thank you. Why'd you make her yell out loud? Is your voice bad? All right. So interestingly, Acts ends in a similar way that Luke ends with Paul, whose life really filled the shape of Jesus's ministry as well. He goes to Jerusalem, he suffers, and is delivered for his execution. And Luke ends Acts showing the exact same thing, showing Paul preaching all of Old Testament scripture to be fulfilled in Jesus and the gospel. Look at verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging to whom he expounded, testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus. And here it is, shorthand for the whole Old Testament, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. Paul sees it all as one story. Now let's look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 through 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 through 16. And I want you to see this in scriptures that we know, you know, really well, I think, most of us. It's on the screen. So Paul is talking to who in the letters of 2 Timothy? In 1 Timothy. Timothy, hey, smart man, Rick. He's talking to Timothy, right? And he's telling Timothy, from a child, you've known the holy scriptures. What scriptures do you think Paul's talking about? Old Testament. Timothy didn't have the New Testament, right? He didn't have it. We don't know how young he was, but, but the New Testament, I mean, we don't know when it was widely circulated. Most of the books were written between 50 and 70 AD. I think Paul's writing 2 Timothy in the mid-50s. Timothy probably, as a child, had none of that, right? So he had the Old Testament. So he had the Old Testament, right? So he says, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. What are the Holy Scriptures? What are the Holy Scriptures? The Old Testament, right? I wrote it up there. Which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. So you know what he's saying? He's saying, if you just read the Old Testament, it'll lead you to place your faith in Jesus for salvation. Apparently it was clear enough, if you knew anything about Jesus, this guy had to be the guy in the Old Testament. So we see this word scriptures, right? And we know the next verse, scripture. So what, what do you think scripture Paul is talking about here? Well, probably the same one he's talking about up here, right? Now, of course, the spirit who's inspiring this knows that when the complete canon is come, he's talking about all of it, right? All of the scriptures. And we'll talk about how we come to recognize all of them eventually someday. But Paul is thinking of the Old Testament, maybe thinking of the book of Luke, because in one of Paul's writings, he quotes the book of Luke. 
But he's definitely thinking of the Old Testament. He says, all scripture. How much of scripture? All of it. And he says, all of it is given by inspiration of God. We got that. And it's profitable. What things is all scripture profitable? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction. So how much scripture is profitable for doctrine? All of it. How much is profitable for reproving? All of it. What about correction? Wait, what about instruction? Wait, hold on a second. You're telling me, Paul, I can get my doctrine from the Old Testament? You might say, well, if I got my doctrine from the Old Testament, then I'm going to be offering lambs as a sacrifice. Okay, pay attention really clearly. Valid thought. But consider the fact that maybe Paul is saying that the only proper interpretation of the Old Testament is to view it in light of its fulfillment in Jesus. That's why he can say all of the Old Testament is profitable for doctrine. Because the only proper way, I'm going to say the right thing so you could fill out your blank because you'll get mad at me if I don't. Here it is. Paul taught that all scripture is profitable for doctrine because correctly interpreting the Old Testament requires that a Christian views it in light of its contribution to the bigger story of scripture. That's why all of it's profitable. Paul's the guy who like argued for the fact that circumcision wasn't necessary. Dietary laws weren't necessary. So why is he looking back at the Old Testament saying it's still profitable for doctrine? He's not worried it'll mislead people because he's saying the only way to read the Old Testament is to view it in light of the big story fulfilled in Jesus and the gospel. So here's what this, this series is gonna be. It's my attempt to show you different themes, different storylines, different plot points, and their connection between old and new. We're going to start next week with the most obvious one. Could you guess which one that would be? The theme of sacrifice. But then we're going to see the theme of covenant, which I think is the major way of viewing the Bible's outline how the Bible progresses. We're gonna look at other themes, kingship, the land of Israel. That one is where people get a little mixed up. The sanctuary in the presence of God, the priesthood, the serpent. Um, and I can't remember which of these I'm still doing, but I know for sure we're ending with marriage which by the way is what we're preaching on today. Because marriage is about more than you and your spouse. It's a picture of the whole story. And so what my, my hope is, li listen real carefully and we'll be done. <clears throat> the more of these themes we understand, the, the more handles we have to feel like we've, we've got a grip when we're reading through Exodus. Because y'all, if you read through Exodus, you're like me, sacrifice. I know, I know how to, to view this. I know the richness this is providing me in viewing Christ's sacrifice for me. But then you get to Moses and the law and you're like, eh, I don't really see what that's about. So I'm gonna hopefully give you a handle on that, right? So that way when you read through law, oh, the priests, I'm reading the priests and I'm thinking of Jesus now. I'm thinking of Jesus now. 
right? And when you read about Joshua in the land, and we look at Stephen's speech, and Stephen sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the land, you recognize that Canaan is not the victorious Christian life. Canaan is salvation. And also the new heavens and the new earth offered by God for us. And so you read the Old Testament, you start seeing, this, this is rich, man. This is so much to offer me as a Christian. That's what I want you to see. So hopefully, we'll work our way through this, and hopefully, I'll have enough time each week to actually cover the topics. Let's pray, and we'll be done this morning.